0: Uh, in addition to Leslie's, and that is we are not a bunch of college students here, okay? I know it looks like we are, but at least one-third, that might be overestimating, but I think that's right, of us are non-college age, meaning like post-college or whatever. So uh, as such, we do have a group for those of you who are not in college, and um, that should tell you a couple things. Number one, that you're welcome to join us. Uh, we meet on Tuesday nights at the ranch, which is where I live, along with three dogs, uh, and four cats, and my beautiful wife, and three roommates, so if that sounds weird to you, it is weird, I guarantee you, Um, but anyway, that's where we meet, Tuesday nights. every other night, we do kind of a study type talk discussion thing, which we'll probably be talking about some of the material that we're in right now, the gender, and all that good stuff, Um, and we're going to be doing some kind of random stuff this semester, and then every other night, we just sort of hang out and spend time together as a group. Uh, Every other week. What did I say? Every other night? Yeah. We're really committed. Uh, Every other night. There is a church next to our house where people are there every single night. I'm like, man, those guys, they really love being together. Uh, We moderately like being together, you know? So every other week is plenty for us. Uh, So um, you're welcome to come to that if you'd like. And I can't possibly tell you enough. uh, The financial seminar in a few weeks, come to that. Whether you are a freshman in college or a senior in college, definitely you're a senior in college, you need to come. Um, But if you're, you know, anywhere along that line, if you want to bring someone, whether someone at your work, and the same thing goes for this series that we're going through now, this is a really accessible series that uh, a lot of people, I think, would be interested in being here for. Um, Because, you know, everyone wants to hear what Christians have to say about sex and gender, you know? They're just always waiting, I don't know, to catch us up, to say what weird things we're going to, you know, come up with next. Who knows? But please, bring folks to the sermon series. Bring folks to the financial seminar we're actually not going to be here for the financial seminar. I think Leslie said that, but I can't remember. We'll just be walking down the street to the American Legion Hall, which is really walking down the street. It's like right here uh, next to us. Okay? okay? Cool? Yeah? Financial seminar? All right. That's going to be great. We're going to talk about finances and insurance and budgeting and you know, all the things that you need to know about interest and all that stuff you have no idea uh, about. Uh, we're going to teach you uh, from a you know, kind of a Christian worldview perspective there. All right, we are going to head into our series. Today is the day to begin. We are reading through Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. I'll refer to it as both. And um, I'm a little nervous about this talk in particular. Not nervous to speak to you. I, you know, used to speaking. But as someone who's a social scientist, and that's sort of a self-given title, I think. I think I can call myself that. I don't know. Um... This is the kind of stuff I study and talk about all the time with students. And so my fear in talking about it with you is that rather than give you a real word from God and a message from God, I will instead just teach you some ideas that I'm really comfortable with teaching and talking about because I'm a social scientist and because gender and sexuality are topics that we cover and we talk about um, a lot. And so one of the real issues that I have even with giving a sermon series like this is I really can't stress to you enough how important it is for you to go back and engage in the scriptural text that we're talking about and, of course, the scripture as a whole and to talk to other brothers and sisters in Christ about this topic. Um, because I'm, I'll tell you ahead of time now, I'm definitely influenced by social scientific thinking. Um, I can pretend that you know I'm all going to give you just what the scripture says, but I promise you, by you know being in the field that I'm in, I'm going to be influenced like that. And and by social science, I just mean simply that uh, I sort of have a perspective on the world that would suggest to me that our culture and our society has a huge impact on our lives. Um, And as such, I'm no different than you in that regard. Uh, I've been heavily impacted by American culture. We're doing a topic right now in focus on Fridays uh, for the next two weeks where we're talking about that idea, and trying to kind of uncover some of the American values that many of us have just glossed over. We don't even realize we're being impacted and affected by them. Some of them really wonderful and good and overlapping with the gospel and some of them really not so great or at least debatable. Um, So I can't possibly stress to you enough in this series. okay? I'm going to make some mistakes. I'm probably going to say some things that aren't right uh, or maybe that are offensive and oh my gosh, maybe that aren't actually very biblical. Um, And I'm just going to apologize for that now and hope that you will have um, the ability and the commitment to actually go back to the scripture and try to research this stuff on your own. Because this is not an easy topic. Um, and it's one that right now in our society is heavily politicized. Um, and meaning that people have strong, strong opinions on one way or the other, or multiple opinions, and they're not necessarily backed by a lot of good thinking. Uh, and particularly not by um, you know, what we see in Jesus' life, a commitment to really doing what God wants him to do. And so i just give you that disclaimer ahead of this, okay? Is that this series is going to be, I think, really fun, but you're going to have to go back and study these ideas for your, on your own. And my biggest fear in all of this is I'm simply going to be preaching to the choir here, that you all already accept many of these ideas, and you're not going to challenge them, you're not going to think through them. This is a topic we have to discuss as a community of Christians. And whether you are, uh, you know, in agreement or disagreement with me, it's a conversation that you need to have with me. That you need to tell me things that maybe I'm missing or insights that, uh, that um, you know, I, I might be missing. And for those of you who already agree with some of the things that I'm saying, good for you. But if you've never really thought about why you agree with them, you've just sort of landed on that perspective, not good for you. Because it's much better that you have the minority opinion in here and that you disagree, but you've actually thought about it and thought about why you're opposing some of those ideas. Um, we'll have a lot more respect for you uh, because you've actually looked into the scripture and done that than people who just sort of take these ideas and run with them. Because at any given time, some of these ideas are going to be acceptable and acceptable to our society. It's not enough that that's why, where we get our authority. As Christians, we live by the spirit of God and the word that comes from God, from each other, from the, the Bible, from whatever source he chooses to use. And we constantly have to take that back Uh, And so I hope that you will listen to these things with a healthy sense of skepticism. Um, Really wanting to go back and try to understand them for yourself and try to come to some of the conclusions on your own that I may uh, suggest to you um, today and throughout this series. The next three sermon topics today, we're going to cover gender and power. Uh, And that's all I've titled it. I'm making this most broad possible topic. Next week, we'll talk about attraction and beauty. And we'll talk about issues with same-sex attraction and uh, some you know, issues with that. And then the third one, we'll talk about sexuality and power. And that's kind of the next three sermon titles that we've got. I'll be preaching all of those. And then Leslie will talk about marriage and intimacy. We'll talk about the risks of relationships. And then we'll use a line from the end of Song of Solomon, which sounds like a cheesy love song, love is stronger than death, uh, as our final sermon uh, topic. And we might actually do sort of a special Easter service with that. Okay? So that's our plan. Uh, at some point in this series, we've also invited three people from our community uh, who have same-sex attraction to come and, you know, sort of tell you about their testimony. Tell you what it's like to be a Christian, uh, you know, who struggles with same-sex attraction. And they're just going to kind of bear their heart and soul to you and just talk about it. And one of the things that I think is really missing and I've said this a lot to you from our conversation about homosexuality, is listening to people's testimonies. We all have theories, we all have ideas, we all have the scriptural knowledge, but few of us have really sat down and grappled with this issue from the perspective of someone who themselves struggles with same-sex attraction. Uh, And therefore, we want those people to come up and we want them to talk to you and uh, tell you their ideas and thoughts and not give them much in the way of, of, you know, here's what you should say, but just let them talk and share with you their experiences. So that'll probably happen most likely in March. Yeah? What uh, date are you going to talk about? Like, the was Probably on the 20th. It all is kind of coordinating the schedules. And by the way, if any of you, um, you know, yourselves struggle with same-sex attraction and would like to participate in that, most likely you will not, you know, be in the actual sermon topic because, or sermon series because I've already kind of organized who that's going to be. But if you have a thought or a poem or a short story or a rant that you want to share with our church during our worship service, Uh, please come and talk to me or talk to Leslie. And we really want to work that in. And one of the things that we're going to be trying to do, about 15 of us two weeks ago met to talk about, maybe that was last week, to talk about uh, our worship service and try to really implement some things like, uh, you know, creative stuff that you guys have created. And we're going to try to come up with an anonymous source place where you can put anonymous stuff so that you don't actually have to read your own thing. Uh, if you don't want to. And we'll try to read that and incorporate it into our worship service. All right? That was a lot of information. I'm sorry about that. But there you go. Any other questions about uh, about our series? No? Great. It'll be recorded as it usually is. And again, I can't tell you um, enough. This is a great topic to bring people to to really talk with them about. And even if you don't bring them here, to address in your conversations with other people, to get an, a perspective of what people who are either outside the church or in other church communities really believe about these topics. This is a topic that is needs to be talked about more, specifically within the church, um, but elsewhere too, so that you can have a real good understanding of what our society thinks about and talks about. And I'll tell you from a scientific perspective, this topic is not being covered much. In the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a real lull in scientific research on gender and sexuality, particularly because of such a hot-button issue. People just don't want to give funding for it. And so instead, what we have that's kind of come into the... Uh, you know, gap of lack of science is we have a whole lot of opinions coming from church, non-church, and anywhere else where people have opinions. And we've got to kind of wade through some of that to really figure out uh, what it is not only that we believe, but what it is that uh, you know, God would have us believe uh, in accordance with his plan for us. So, um, anyway, I just say all that to say that was like a 10-minute intro. Wow, that was way too long. Um, but it happens, you know. So, Song of Songs advice. Let me give you... Uh, a recap of the advice that I've already given uh, in here, just for those of you who want to read it, reread it. I would definitely recommend you do it. Continue to reread it to try to pick up on some of the things that we're talking about, okay? Number one, read it literally, not allegorically. I know it'll be much more comfortable for some of you to read it allegorically, and certainly in the past, uh, the church has done that. By allegory, I just mean not taking what you see and saying that, hey, that's the meaning, but sort of like drawing crazy conclusions, and I'm saying crazy, that's not fair, but drawing conclusions that aren't necessarily in the text themselves, right? Or aren't directly there. Instead, trying to make claims about, well, this really represents this, and is symbolic of this, and this other thing, or whatever. We are going to read this text literally, even though it was outlawed, and, you know, Christendom in 500 A.D. We weren't allowed to read it. We're no longer under their reign, thankfully. Therefore, we will read this literally. Okay, That's the point that we will start with. And literally, unfortunately, the Song of Songs for many of us is a song, a poem about love, particularly sexual love, between really multiple men, um, and we'll address that today a little bit. That makes you a little on the edge of your seat. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. So read literally and be careful with allegory, okay? We will allegorize some parts, but only after we come to a literal meaning of, of what's being said here. Okay? And this is one of the biggest issues with Song of Solomon, and one of the main reasons why most people have ignored it throughout the ages, because they've allegorized all the meaning away from it so that it has no literal, no applicable meaning to us other than, well, God really loves us. But actually, if you think about Song of Solomon and you really start with God loves us, it's actually a little bit creepy, okay? Because, like, it's then emphasizing God's sexual love for us. Uh, I don't think so, okay? And so that's a little bit of a creepy interpretation, and yet somehow that major interpretation has existed throughout the ages, and I'm not for sure why, but we'll try to uncover some of that. Number two is trying to determine what Solomon's role actually is. Some of you are already used to us treating Solomon as the foil or sort of as like the anti-hero character. Because of Ecclesiastes, where we suggested in our sermon series that, it, that really Solomon serves as sort of an anti-hero, someone who you're really not supposed to be like in Ecclesiastes. Now, I find it interesting that a lot of Christians see Song of Sol- or sing Solomon as a good character in both Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, and yet Kings makes it very clear that Solomon was not a good dude. Beginning of his life, you know, maybe he had knowledge and he had wisdom, but towards the end, he just got consumed by his wisdom, and particularly consumed by women. And that was sort of his downfall, you know. Those tricky women, you know, they'll get you each time. Um, was oh, supposed to be a joke apparently it wasn't funny so yeah thanks my wife you know doing the yeah whatever Don, um, you got it thank me appreciate that the older I get the less funny I really am it's really a terrible thing I think well whatever I'm not going to talk about it. it's a whole other problem okay so what's Solomon's role uh, I'm going to suggest to you in Song of Solomon Solomon's role again is the anti-hero he is the foil character and in particular, if you read through chapter 3 and chapter 8, you'll see this emphasized and highlighted. He is not someone to sort of look at and think, man, good dude here. But rather, and I would find that the scripture would be a little bit hard pressed and would be a little weird if we were presenting Solomon in these two books as a good dude, but we've already made it clear that he wasn't. Um, So anyway, we're just going to take that perspective. Is there another option to kind of see Solomon as the main character? Sure, you're welcome to do that. I'm not going to force this this perspective on you. I also, as a side disclaimer, will tell you that I apologize that I've chosen two books over the last year that have like alternate, you know, um, meanings and interpretations. I'm not trying to suggest to you at all that the scripture is full of just like, just choose an interpretation, you know, whichever one you want to go with, go with. Uh, it just so happens that these two books in particular have really long history and tradition of different interpretations. So uh, it's not how it is always with the rest of Scripture, particularly the New Testament. One of the main reasons why we don't like studying the Old Testament as much is because it takes a little bit more explanation and is kind of trickier. So read literal, try to figure out Solomon's role and decide for yourself whether he's the anti-hero character in Song of Solomon and then this contrast between common uh, uh, godly love and commonplace love. Okay? This is going to be a big, big, huge um, you know, theme throughout this. Uh, we will suggest to you today that uh, you know, Solomon is kind of considered as this kingly person who has this harem of women, who treats women more or less like any king would have treated them, that is to say, as objects and yet one of these women in his harem apparently had already had some kind of marital relationship with the man before she entered into the harem and continues this love affair with this man who she sees herself as really married to despite the fact that she's been basically sold by her brothers into this king's harem, okay? And that's sort of what we're operating off of in terms of the, uh, the story itself, okay? All right, that's enough. I've spent half my sermon time introducing it. Oh, dear. Okay, gender. Uh, Gender, gender, gender. What, What a wonderful term. Okay, this is sort of a new and modern term, all right? It's not that a lot of folks in, you know, 100, 200, even 300 years ago were talking about gender. Most people thought of gender and sex as pretty synonymous. You are what you are, right? There's nothing really too much to it, you know? You get certain parts, you out come from the womb with those parts, and that makes you male or female. Now, ambiguous sexual parts aside, which is a thing and happens and there's a big field of research into that, those folks who uh, you know, are born with ambiguous uh, sexual organs, who have some type of surgery, that is itself kind of an interesting field um, to discover and to talk about, and researchers who have been in that. Um, we will just assume that most of us had pretty non-ambiguous sexual organs at birth, okay? Not to, you know, uh, count anybody out, but generally speaking, that's the truth. We generally know whether we're male or female at birth. But the real question is, does that mean that automatically our gender is determined by our sex? And is that how it works? And in sociology, we generally dis- differentiate the term gender and sex. Sex is a biological thing. Gender is more or less a societal thing that we decide based on sex and sexuality. Okay? And for those of you who have never taken sociology, don't worry. We're going have to go too far into that. Just recognize that gender is a pretty new term. All right? Uh, and that in ancient times, it really wasn't something people talked about, as if gender and sex were different. People just assumed because your sex was different, your gender was obviously different. All these behaviors came from your biology and how you were created rather than society's expectations for you. Wow, that's interesting. This has become the dominant conversation over the last 30 or 50 years in our society. Is, is gender something you're born with? Or is it something that truly society decides for you, and to what degree? It's also a really interesting and, I think, good question for us to be asking. Okay? Uh, Think about it like this. Throughout the ages, most of the languages uh, that have been spoken have been gendered, meaning that you don't just say, I'm going to eat at a restaurant after I go to church. You speak that in Hebrew, it's I'm going to female church, and after I'm going to female restaurant. Words are gendered themselves, right? I think this is still true of Spanish mostly, although I don't really know Spanish, so Spanish speakers, forgive me. Okay, Sean's back there saying yes. Good, great. <laughs> Words are gendered. What the heck? Where did that come from? Uh, even numbers are gendered, okay? Uh, and uh, from what I understand about Arabic, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, where's Hyun? Doesn't Hyun know a little bit of Arabic? That's not here. Skipping? Working? No. Good excuse. The number one, is synonymous with the Arabic word for male and female, sorry, you're number two. And who knows why that is? There have been all kinds of interesting studies which I won't go into because they may embarrass you. Um, but generally speaking, if you look at the number one and you look at two, maybe you could, okay. Um, so, language is long, some of you are like, drawing it out and see what happens. Language has been gendered for a long time. So what do we do with pronoun, pronouns then in the Hebrew uh, that are gendered pronouns, male or female pronouns? Are we meant to take it literally that a table in Hebrew is supposed to be a female table? The word for table is a gendered feminine word. What do we do with that? People have pointed out the fact that a lot of the names of God are primarily male, and yet a number of different words that have been assigned to the Holy Spirit are female, right? Right? If some of you read The Shack, that's about as close as you got to understanding that principle, right? Like The Shack is this like, I don't know, what it, she's like an Asian woman or something um, in The Shack. And it's supposed to be representing the Holy Spirit. Okay, sorry, none of you have read that. That's a cool thing that Christians like, I guess, in my generation, but who knows. So, language is gendered, okay? And as such, there was just sort of a common perception that women were inferior to men. It wasn't like anybody really sat down and thought about it a whole lot or it had been really researched. Just generally speaking, people thought women were inferior to men. It seemed to make sense okay in almost every society uh we see that maybe it's because of the animal kingdom somehow that happens that men tend to be in the at least mammalian kingdom in charge right lions just sort of get to sit back and eat their own children uh and the women are ones having to go out and do the work you know and the man gets like 80 women you know in a lion what do you call that Pride. pride thank you why did i miss that that's yeah so there are plenty of these mammalian examples, again, where you know um, men are the dominant creatures over uh, females. Although some of there's been some research into that that says, eh, I don't know about that, and it's true. I know in my home, I have um, four cats, and the female cat by far is the craziest of the cats. And I don't mean that in a bad way, I mean she's aggressive, she's not that affectionate, she's really an adventurer. Chelsea and I were uh, hanging out the other day. And somehow she had gotten herself behind, like in that little spot. I told this already to the culture folks. Literally the sides of her body just dived in head first. And all we see are her legs just <laughs> like this. And just all which ways. And we're like t- laughing too hard to go actually help her. So for probably the better part of a minute, her legs are just everywhere. And somehow... Smart as a whip, figured out how to get up. I guess she did a push-up. I don't know. It's amazing. And then I look at like my one of my other male cats, who's super fearful. And anytime you make a move, he's gone. You know. And it's really needy and affectionate. So at least when it comes to cats, you know, I don't know if the gender stereotypes are right. Anyway, <laughs> women inferior to men in the ancient kingdom. Most people in most writings didn't even really address this issue. It was just assumed. So, the fact that in our modern day we've started to, try to challenge this notion is really kind of interesting in terms of human history. Okay, now some people exaggerate the degree to which women were inferior or were seen as inferior, but I think generally speaking, when we look at human institutions, we can see even today around the world, generally, uh, societies that tend to be less civilized, however we're going to describe that, uh, and that might be a very Western centric perspective. Uh, don't really allow women to, you know, work and, you know, take really important roles in society. They're relegated to the less desirable roles, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So, then comes Genesis uh, 2, right? So, we're going to look at Genesis 2, and we're going to kind of start there. I don't know how to to do this without starting there. So, if you want to turn with me there, that's great. Genesis 2, here we are. Uh, Starting in verse 7, and we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. So, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? And uh, so, there you go. You get the man. He's being created. Good for him. Wonderful. Yes. Then in verse 18, and a lot's been made of this verse. Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay? A lot of Christians have read that in the past as, I will make a sidekick he can make fun of. <laughs> Number one, the word uh, suitable simply in Hebrew, the best English translation we have for it is corresponding. Literally corresponding, meaning the same, equal to. Okay. Now we read helper in our very individualistic society as sort of like, oh, that guy needs a helper, he's weak. But that might be just our American culture in terms of reading into this, that somehow helper you know, suggest that this is sort of a less than being or a less important creature. I think if you read that, and you read it at least in accordance with how I think the text is, uh, you know, trying to, to uh, bring it about, it's that it's not good for guy, a, a dude, or anyone to be alone with God he needs relationships with other people, whether that's a marriage relationship, whether that's a friendship, because a lot of people have put a lot into how, well, God said that marriage is the you know, antidote to all the world's problems. Yeah, but I don't think he was saying marriage here. He was just saying other people, which could be a woman. It could be a man, a son, that the son and the father have a relationship, and that's good. It can mean a lot of different things. But I think here primarily he's saying he's creating this other person that's going to be corresponding to him. Okay, a helper to be correspondent. Okay, uh, we'll continue to read. Uh, you know, well, I don't actually want to read that. Uh, let's see, eighteen. No suitor. Okay, so no suitable helper was found from all the animals, right? Okay, good deal. Um, although I take issue with that, I love my dogs a lot, and they seem to be very suitable to me um, as a helper. Okay, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. <laughs> Let me make a real quick side comment here. Okay. It's not okay to take Song of Solomon, I think, allegorically. But if there is one section of the scripture, we have to at least open a door for interpreting allegorically. It is the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, some of you may absolutely hate, for me, hate me for this and think, oh my goodness, he's not a Christian. But when it, And my wife is shaking your head. Yes. When it comes to Genesis 1-11, through 11, I'm sorry, there are a lot of things being said that seem crazy, kind of like the whole rib you know, turning into, I mean, the whole dust thing was one thing, but then the rib, I mean, my goodness. Uh, so, I'm not at all suggesting this didn't happen, I'm not suggesting it's not true. I'm simply suggesting that when you really read Genesis in the genre that it was meant to be read, which was an ancient mythical story explaining how the world came to be, then you're going to find that some of the language here definitely symbolizes and signifies things. We're telling people in shorthand the most important details they need to know without explaining exactly how this woman was created from a rib if that is indeed how she was created, okay? Or if that was indeed how any human was created. Now, I'm simply going to tell you that. I don't have enough time to go into that. I apologize. If you have questions about an allegorical reading of Genesis, then please come and talk to me, and we'll, we'll talk about it, okay? And maybe we'll start with figuring out where the heck the giants went, because I want to know where the giants went. <laughs> um, all right. So, um, there we go. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. And actually, it's interesting, the, the NIV adds she here. But actually, the original Hebrew just says this one. (laughs) This one will be called woman. Uh, This one was taken out of a man. Um, Do with that what you will. Okay. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. Okay. I want to move on to chapter 3. And uh, we're going to read through this really quickly. You guys, uh, many of you know the story. I can already tell my sermon is going to go long. I'm sorry goodness, I introduced this way too long. Okay, serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals. Uh, he said to the woman, again, something that deserves a little explanation why a snake is talking. I remember I had these Catholic friends uh, when I was younger and I remember them telling me that if Eve hadn't sinned, all animals would be able to talk. And I remember being so pissed. Like, are you kidding me right now? You know, if only she hadn't made that dumb mistake, you know. We'd be talking with animals, like in, uh, you know, uh, Narnia. Um, One of the many downsides of sin, okay. So... He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You won't die, the serpent said. "For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She, nicely, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And it begs the question, where's the dude in this entire situation, right? There's a a snake talking. This is exciting. He's given some new rules. Where is this guy? You know, like what? (laughs) Absentee, you know, man. I don't know where he is. The woman, like normal, is doing all of the work, you know, figuring out, you know, new ways of, you know, eating cool fruits and things like that. (laughs) And the guy is nowhere to be found. Who knows what he's doing, okay? Okay, so... Uh, when the woman said, oh, blah, blah, yeah. So he gave some to her husband. Eyes of both of them were open. Realized they were naked. So fig leaves on. Man's wife heard the sound of the Lord coming. And I'm sorry, but this is one of my favorite sections of all scripture. Because somehow, many folks have looked back at the story and, and put the woman at fault here. like That it's just kind of her problem. And in fact, even Paul would say, it was the woman deceived, not the man. And we have to make sense of that statement. What is he saying? This seems crazy. What is, you know, he's telling Timothy This. Uh, so maybe he doesn't expect it to be known somehow. I don't know, but we've got to address that later. Uh, but now you have a really funny reversal of things, and I, I just can't help but read this in a way that makes the woman look so much better than the man. So if initially the woman was deceived, here I think you're going to get a reversal here. Uh, so here's what happens: uh, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was a naked, so I hid. He said, "Who told you you were naked?" Are you eating from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man's response, come on. I mean, this is great stuff. Does he take responsibility? Does he, you know, what does he do? He blames everybody else but himself. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from a tree and I ate it. I'm completely innocent. Okay, It's the woman's fault, and then it's your fault. I'm sorry, but when you compare the woman's response here to the man's response, I, I just can't see how you would-, would leave this situation thinking somehow the man was really sort of innocent and the woman was, was at fault. Um, because here's what uh, you know um, she says. Serpent deceived me, and I ate. <laughs> so <laughs> it leaves. She blames the serpent, which seems like the one in all of this that should be blamed some. But she's just kind of honest about it. Yeah, yeah, serpent got me. I ate it. I know. First one to admit it. And here's the guy blaming everybody else but him. I'm sorry. I don't know how else to read that without kind of, you know, my eye just sort of goes up there. Okay. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and wild animals. You crawl in your belly. You'll eat the dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Weird idea of the offspring there. Um, a lot has been said about it, can't go into it, but just notice that that offspring thing comes up. Here's what I really want you to pay attention to this is something that we've really got to talk about. I mean, we've got to discover what's happening here. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, with painful labor you will give birth to children. Okay, um, w- weird, weird punishment for what has gone on, okay? Uh, and there's a lot that's been said here about what's actually happening and how does this relate to the offspring before. And it doesn't exactly seem like a natural consequence. Almost all the other consequences seem kind of natural. And by natural, I mean like they fit the crime. But this whole like, but when you have babies, it's going to hurt real bad. Is like, <laughs> what is that about? And why does God connect that to what's happening? But I want you to notice something else because we're not going to talk about that. Uh, this is the only time that the authors are basically saying, God said this would happen as a result, and it's coming from me. Everything else you get henceforth, the authors don't seem, don't seem to make it necessary, I don't know why I said it like that, to blame God for doing these things. We often read these as curses that God gave as a result of their sin. But I want to argue that there's at least as good of a reason to read these as natural consequences for their sin. Not something that God is doing in terms of punishment, but is doing in terms of explaining, here's how life's going to work outside of my garden. And that reading is not very common today, and I'm really not for sure why, because if you're taking this text somewhat literally and reading through it, God's not taking credit for this this stuff that comes after. So here we go. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Did it say, I will make your desire for your husband and he will rule over you? Or is he simply making a statement about the consequences as being a part of the Eden? First you have corresponding, now you have power. And I think this is really important. I'm not saying necessarily that you ought to see it the way I'm seeing it. I'm simply saying, I think that the text at least deserves you to understand that God may be not actually punishing them here directly, but simply explaining here's how life's going to work outside of Eden. A lot of Christians have gone back to this verse and tried to justify patriarchy and men having power over women because that's how God designed it. But if they're using this verse, they don't have a real tough leg to stand on. I don't know, I was not as strong as I wanted to be, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Okay? <laughs> To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you notice how he definitely gives him responsibility. It's not simply that, you know, well, you're just sort of thrown into this mix because of her. You listened. You had the choice not to. You must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You eat from the food all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. You will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. Food, ground, taken, dust, dust, you will return. Now certainly I'm not trying to say that this is just sort of how the world works and God didn't have a part in it. But I want to know, when I'm reading back through this verse, is this something that God's saying, well, I'm just going to make the world a terrible place for you now as a result of you sinning as sort of this like grumpy old man? Or unfortunately, you want to live in a world apart from Eden? This is how the world is going to work. As I've studied evolutionary theories, I've often wondered, and I won't say my own perspective and thinking on this, but I've wondered if evolutionary theories uh, are, are true. I wonder how much of that is God saying, here's how the world would work apart from me. It's random, it's chaotic, there's some good stuff, there's some bad stuff, but not a whole lot of meaning. And if God gave us that apart from the garden in hopes that we would recognize the world apart from God is really not such a great place. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of order to it or organization. Good people get punished, great people, uh, you know, get punished. Really bad and evil people get away with all kinds of things. That's life apart from me. So I want us to think about this as possibly simply telling us what the world is like apart from him and not him subjecting us to these things uh, because of some punishment. So we think about it like that. We think about these things possibly are natural consequences. That apart from Eden where at least you had an equality of relationship, now you women are going to be inferior to men they're going to rule over you and that's how society is going to work. And man, doesn't that reverse how we see this, this idea of authority? Again, you might not agree with it. And again, you might have to go back and actually understand it uh, and study it for your own. But it seems to me at least as plausible, at least as plausible an explanation of what's going on here as anything that I've heard on the opposing side. Okay? Natural consequences. And you guys understand what I mean by natural consequences, right? We're tying... The punishment to uh, the crime, right? It makes sense. I, I don't know if you guys work with kids, uh, but that's like was such a big deal with kids when I worked with kids. Natural consequences. At first, I thought it was really burdensome, and then it just became really fun. Um, to come up with natural consequences, it really made me want to be a parent. For the first time in my life, Troy, you and me again today, man. Look at that. It's uncanny. Uh, I loved coming up with natural consequences uh, because it was just fun. It was creative. You know, you got to tie the crime. So one time I had this kid who was putting gum in people's hair, and so I took all the gum that I could find from underneath some of the desks, watered it down a little bit, put it in my hair, and then he had to spend the next three and a half hours pulling it out of my hair. It's uh, <laughs> a little extreme, I know. but So parents were coming in, and here this little kid is picking gum out of my hair. And I was like, listen, man, when you do stuff like that, sometimes the natural consequence is you're going to have to spend a whole lot more time with one little quick minute decision you made is going to cost you hours of time trying to fix it. Natural consequence. <laughs> you got him. I did get him. Yeah, it hurt, like, a lot. Like, I lost a lot of hair. Um, and I wonder, you know, how smart that, that really was. But it was definitely funny. As parents came in and they're like, what is happening? Sometimes I'd explain it, sometimes I wouldn't. Um, another one, a kid was going around calling people names, you know, and so... Um, I do a lot of things with name calling. I have him look it up in the dictionary. I have him go and tell seven positive things to someone because names hurt. But this one, I just had him go and take a poll of ten different kids on what it meant like, meant to be a good friend. Because, um, like, man, you keep calling people names. You're just going to lose friends. And this is the best way for you to do this. And time and time again, these, like, creative punishments are way worse than just sitting in timeout for, like, ten or twenty minutes. Because kids are like... Oh, my gosh. i got to go interview 10 kids on what it means to be a friend? Like, what? And they would come back with just, it would be the most fun conversations. Now, I will admit that towards the end of my... Uh, you know, working with kids, I got really tired, and I just pretty much put everyone in this little square we had. I was just like, "All right, go to the square for 15 minutes." <laughs> just didn't have the creative energy to do natural consequences. But that's what I mean here by natural consequences: is uh, that when we think about what's going on here, we're tying this to uh, what's actually happening, and God is just more informing them uh, than trying to punish them meanly. Although it, I really didn't make that sound like I was enjoying punishing them, didn't I? I don't know what that says about my comparison. So, okay, so into the into the picture of Song of Solomon. Here we go. What a interesting book. In a society where women are inferior, the woman is the main character here. She is the initiator. She is the lead. She is the hero. Just the book itself, without any of the content in it, would have been a little bit of a slap into the face of Israel's patriarchy. No wonder why people have read it in allegorical terms in the past. I think a lot of men uh, were not quite willing, and the institutions of the day were not quite willing to allow this book to have the kind of impact maybe it was supposed to have. She was the initiator. She's the main character. Uh, it kind of makes you almost like, if you can imagine yourself being, uh, and, th- and this book, by the way, split the, um, uh, the Jewish school kind of down the middle, man. I mean, people just didn't know what to do with it. Kind of like Ecclesiastes but you can just imagine, you know, those of you who have seen Arrested Development, um, her? Her? You know? But like, and her? Uh, well, instead of this being like a blase woman, it's more like a scandalous woman. I can imagine there would be the same response. Like, her? Of all people, you're going to, you know, try to kind of lift and elevate? I mean, we've got this is in the company of Esther and Ruth and some really, like, great women, and then all of a sudden you get Rahab, and you get Mary, and you get this lady here uh, who for all intents and purposes, seems to have this what's illicit in her day and age, perhaps, marriage, but true marriage, nonetheless, uh, to a man while also being in the harem of the king. She's darker skinned. Apparently, people mistake her as a prostitute every now and again, um, there in chapter one. Uh, her vineyard has been used, okay, which is the way that the book puts it. Um, and her brothers largely don't respect her. They've just sort of sold her off. And then you get this picture of her and you think, Her? Out of where? Like, couldn't we have found a more noble woman to you know, be the lead character of a book? And yet, I think it says something about our God uh, that this book was written uh, and with the subject of this lady as the main character. But this is also what I want to suggest to you a Norman Christian Scripture. It's a norm. Scripture throughout both the Old and New Testament places women in roles and talks about women in ways that were very counter to the day and age. And sure, we get Leviticus where women are treated as property and let's not try to pretend that that's any better than what it was. If a woman was raped, a lot of times she had two choices, you know? She could either marry that man uh, or stay single for the rest of her life, you know, but there wasn't a chance for her to marry someone else. She was considered an adulterer. Same thing in the law, guys. That's what Leviticus says. We can't, as Christians, try to explain away some of the more nasty details of the Old Testament law. We just can't. Okay, We've got to deal with it. We've got to grapple with it. But so often in Scripture, women are presented in ways that the culture would have not agreed with. Let me give you a real great one. Women find the tomb empty in the Easter witness. Guys, you'd have to be an absolute idiot in first century uh, Israel if you were making up a story about Jesus being resurrected, saying that women were the first ones to find the body. Women's testimony had no legal weight in a court system. None. Zero. They weren't an eyewitness. No crimes could happen against them. They couldn't take someone to court. And for the, the authors of the New Testament to say the women found the tomb empty first opened up them not only to a huge amount of criticism, okay, But all kinds of issues related to that. It would have been a lot easier for them to say, yeah, I think John was kind of the first one. You know, he was running, he got there like slightly before the women, you know? And then he saw the women looking and sort of like, you know, it made it work. Real easy detail we could have turned and twisted there to make that story a lot more believable in its day and age. But I think the scripture consistently, consistently places women in in places of leadership and talks about women in ways that were really against the cultural understanding of the time. And I could give you example after example, but I just gave you that example. And certainly if you go back and look at Jesus' ministry, uh, women play an incredibly prominent role, uh, which would you know, put them at odds with a whole lot of people. Okay, so where did this inferiority come in then in the Christian uh, way of thinking? Uh, women are inferior. Well, again, I think a lot of well-meaning Christians have read the curses as being this is how God wants things rather than this is how the world works. There are a number of other reasons. Perhaps they looked in the tradition of uh, ancient societies and rather than looked at the really uh, um, crazy message of the gospel, and uh, they instead kind of looked to their societal pressures and influence to really capitulate to this idea that women are, yes, inferior. And then that's how God wants them, to be subjected to men uh, and men's authority. The Proverbs 31 woman. I love that the Proverbs, most people can't really remember what's in it. But man, when it comes to what women should be like, Proverbs 31. Oh yeah. That's what a good woman's like. We got like Proverbs 31 ministries, you know. I'm sorry, but Proverbs are wisdom stories. And sure, maybe those are some really good advice. Uh, that's good advice when it comes to wisdom. But I'm not so sure that sums up the Bible's uh, you know, whole thinking on women and women's roles. Let's mention the fact that what we talked about with wisdom is all wisdom is often contradictory. To try to get you to think in different ways, like Ecclesiastes is often. Okay? 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul talks about women uh, needing to be submissive and silent. Of course, in that context, he's not talking about all women. He's talking about wives. But we've got to deal with that. We've got to address it. 2 Timothy, uh, in verse 2, where he tells, you know, um, Timothy about this whole idea of women, you know, are weaker and, you know, they sin first, and so, you know, women, men have to have power and authority over them. Guys, you've got to address those passages. My sociology textbook has those two passages in the section where it talks about religion's uh, impact on society and how religion has often embraced the patriarchal society, uh, even when society um, has tried to go against it. And that's interesting, those two passages. Is it kind of freezing in here? If it's freezing, you can just turn the, uh, the deals up. Just uh, try not to break it, but you can pull those little uh, plastic covers off if you want to. First uh, Corinthians 11 and 2 Timothy 2. Oh, I'm going like way over today, aren't I? Man, this is intense. I'm so sorry. What did I think I could do this whole thing? I have like one page of notes. That's all I have. This is uh, the problem with this topic. Okay. So, where do we get this idea? I think a lot of times it's because of our simple nature, which is about wanting to have power over people and because of societal norms. Um, now, that should give us concern and cause, by the way, not to go to this other end of the spectrum where we pretend as if there is nothing significantly different between a male and a female other than their biological organs. Uh, I love feminism. Feminism has done some really amazing things in our society, but it's also done some really detrimental things by trying to convince us that women and men are no different than each other. They're almost the exact same that takes God's, you know, um, initiative and development of women and men being different and just sort of throws it out. Ah, that's just something we believe. And I think it's done some harm, particularly in confusing people, what it means to really be a woman and a man. Uh, so, societal pressure simple uh, sinful nature. So I want to give you a cautionary, uh, I, I guess, warning, and let's not make the same mistake with societal pressure today. It's not enough that you've just decided in your mind women and men are, even, are the same or women and men are different and therefore one should have authority. We need to figure out why we believe the things that we believe and how much of that has come from your Christian upbringing where you were told men should have authority over women and how much of that's come from your societal upbringing where you've been told women and men are the exact same and therefore they're equal and we ought not do anything. Have you really thought about this? Have you tried to really understand what it means from a biblical perspective? Do you have any authority other than your tradition and your culture to come to the conclusion that you've come to? If your answer to that is no, it's time for you, number one, to be more humble about your own viewpoint, and two, for you to go in and listen to the Word of God on this topic. Because there's a lot said. More importantly, we're going to look to Jesus when it comes to trying to really figure this issue out because He's the central source of our knowledge, I think, about gender and about this issue. So there's so many things right now, guys, that, 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 in terms of current issues. Should women be speaking up in the church, and should they have a ministerial roles? Well, you've seen that our church has an answer on this. Leslie speaks, and she's going to continue to speak. Uh, some of our other churches that are a part of our network are not comfortable with that, and they've chosen to take a different route. Does that mean that they're bad or evil or awful? <clears throat> Honestly, I think that the scripture is somewhat vague about gender roles, uh, simply so that people can live in accordance with their, their cultural time. I really do believe that. I believe a lot of what Paul saying in Corinthians and to Timothy is about a specific culture and a time, and I'm not just using that as an excuse to say, oh, it's cultural, Let's just ignore it. No, the question is, well, why? What specific things do we know about that culture that would make him say what he said? And how much of that is uh, normative for us now? Should we be following today? But I do think there's some gray area here. And so do I think it's okay that some of our churches have decided to not let women take on ministerial roles? It's not my preference, but am i going to call them not Christian for, the, for it. Am I going to rail against them and speak from the pulpit that we think they're terrible people for not doing it? No, not necessarily, because I think the scripture allows us some gray area decisions within that. We've got to decide. Now, I think we're going to critique and argue against ill thought out and, uh, you know, chauvinistic thinking. You better believe it. But if someone has a real um, disagreement and they think it's really from the biblical text, then we're going to listen to that. Because we're going to be unified. Not around ideas, but around a common spirit <laughs> that wants to get to the truth in these issues. And if that means two people come out in different ways of thinking about it, oh well. Okay. Um, but we're going to do that. And as a body of churches, we're going to do that. We're going to talk about this. And we're going to try to figure it out and make sense of it. So women's role in churches... Authority in marriage. Uh, The couple that did Chelsea and my uh, pre-engagement counseling did not agree with us when it came to authority in marriage. Chelsea and I are pretty, um, I don't know, what do you call that? Uh, We tend to think that we're more equal um, when it comes to the marriage relationship. We believe the scriptural testimony is one that says that we should be constantly in submission to each other, that we're in a complementary relationship. The couple that was counseling us really believed a little bit more in the man has like sort of authority. He shouldn't be using it, you know, often, but when it comes down to it, he's the spiritual leader of the family and he should make those decisions. Do we think that they're terrible at counseling us? These are our best friends, some of them, which we would just go anywhere with. Is it okay to have both of those opinions? I think from the scriptural perspective, it kind of is. I mean, you can maybe argue one way or the other. But the Scripture, I do think, allows for cultural change. If it didn't, how would it be a living document? How would we possibly minister to the culture around us? And many of us ought to start thinking about, well, you know, we're in Denton, we're in an area where, you know, yeah, okay, it's a little bit liberal, we've got a bunch of young people. So what does it look like when I'm trying to say, well, yeah, I believe in male authority over women. Now, again, are we capitulating to our culture when we do that? I don't know. I mean, Paul seems to, to think of being able to relate to your culture as a really important issue. So much so that he's willing to become like people just to be able to present the gospel in their language. Does that mean that I go against my belief that, oh my goodness, may I have a spiritual authority in this case in order to try to relate to our society? I don't know. That's a slippery slope, okay? I'm not telling you one way or the other. But I'm certainly telling you, and some of you are like, will you just save one way or the other? I'm tired of this in the middle stuff. The Scripture gives us a lot of leeway here. It doesn't give us rules. As much as Christians would love for the Scripture to be a rule book, it is not. It is primarily about relationship. Both relationship with each other and relationship with God as the Spirit works in us and through us. Yeah. And know, we are going to continue to have people who have different viewpoints on this issue in our church? Hopefully. I know for a fact when it comes to same-sex attraction, we've got folks on both ends of the extreme in terms of what they believe about it. And I'm okay with that. I really am. We're going to teach and we're going to preach on how to think about these issues, but not necessarily what to think about them all the time. Because God gives us grace for those of you who aren't on my side. Okay? (laughs) Just just playing. I'm just playing. All right. Um, Jobs today. You know, this is one of the things I talk a lot with my students about. I can almost predict what the uh, the females in my class uh, classes are going to do with their jobs and their careers because about two thirds of all women go into one uh, of you know three fields: nursing, some kind of secretarial or support work, or into teaching. Now, is that because women really want to do that? Some would argue yes. Some would argue no. They're tracked into it, forced into these positions. Uh, is there a reason that teachers get paid less today than they got paid in the 1950s, elementary school teachers? Uh, well, someone suggests it's because we have a lot more female elementary school teachers than ever before. And as soon as females dominate a career, all of a sudden the pay goes down. Now, just as many people would say, well, that's because women aren't you know, uh, really out there and they won't negotiate, and so that's why they get paid less. And that's true. The, the research backs that up. Women are much less likely to argue for a higher salary than men are. So do we blame women or do we blame society? Well, it's cyclical, cyclical, circular. (laughs) Maybe women are less likely to negotiate because they've been taught to think of themselves as, you know, not worth it. I don't know. I mean, how do we decide this stuff? Are we the way that we are because of our culture or because of our genetics? Hello, nature, nurture. Oh, my gosh, I'm getting far into teaching. and I'm going to stop doing that. Um, So jobs, family roles. One of the biggest issues that I've noticed over the last 10 or 15 years is where are our dads at? Where are our dads at? Women have started working. They're more successful than men in every field, uh, I mean, in every level of education. Women are graduating more than men at every level, including PhDs. And at the undergraduate level, it's like 37 percent to 63 percent. Men are checking out of classes. They're checking out of churches. Look around at our group here. It's predominantly women. They're checking out of of things in our society that have long been thought of as nurturant roles. Why are they doing that? It's because men are terrible people, love video games? Yes. No. (laughs) No. It's because our society has often approached these strict gender roles. Guys don't do family. They're not good at it. It's not in their nature. Well, look what that's done to us as a society. We have a whole lot of single-parent families. Guys can't be a good dad. My dad was wonderfully affectionate to me. I'm not very affectionate, so that didn't really wear off on me, but um, he would wish so. Yeah, he's still trying. That's the testimony we have in our society right now when it comes to family roles. Guys don't want to do family roles. It's seen as a womanly job, as a feminine job, as a devalued job. So what are we going to do in our society to get men to really get back into the, the family? I don't know. But this whole feminist movement of treating men and women as exactly the same and no different hasn't seemed to work. It seemed to push a whole lot of guys out of knowing what their place is in society. These are big issues. And as Christians, I think we want to wade into them. What are you looking at? Did you, did you argue? I don't agree with you just said. Oh, feminists? Yeah, I know. Well, that's what happens when you marry a feminist, you know. Um, that's fine. We can disagree. No, that's... Yeah. <laughs> Name calling. I can't name call. I got to say seven positive things. Okay, you're beautiful. I love you. Like, nice hair. It's like kids do, right? That's seriously. That's what they're list. It's like they're telling guys. Okay, uh, you're beautiful. You're good looking. Uh, uh, I like your hair. I like your hands. You have nice legs. Boys uh, telling other boys that. It's like they just want to think of as many non-like character things. It's just body type things. I'm like, okay, that's not positive statements. Okay, that's okay. Anyway, there we go. I did it. Um, yeah, and I think this is one of the big issues too. Often, and one of the things that I think feminists have rightly pointed out is, you know, okay, so let's say that women and men are naturally different, and we have different roles. Well, why is it though that we consistently devalue and disrespect feminine uh, roles and behaviors? Right? You know, I love the idea. My, when I tell my classes, okay, differentiate between women and men. Biggest difference? Well, women are more emotional. I'm like, oh, really? Well, that's interesting. <laughs> Why is it that in our minds we've decided that crying is a sign of emotion and physical aggression or emotional withdrawal isn't equally a sign of emotion? Uh, what? How is it that aggression and lack of, you know, emotional response is people not being overly emotional? Hello? And Somehow, in our language, women crying. That's just the proof they're more emotional. Oh, my goodness, you know? No, I don't think so, okay? This, is, this, is, this system is a way of our thinking that's really, I don't think, so good. And some of you women need to slow down your heads, okay, when you're doing this whole life. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Humility. <laughs> Be subject, you know, as Christ. All of us, that applies to women and men, all right? We don't want the reversal of this, okay? Our goal is not... You know, matriarchy. Our goal is complementary roles, I think, okay? Roles that help, roles that really work together. Um, so, in this passage, and I know I'm like, I've just preached a double sermon, so that's great, and I'm halfway through my notes, so that's even better. I'm going to have to wrap this up. All right. So, one of the really cool things you have here in chapter one, I think, is uh, you have the kind of beginning story of. This woman's two loves, okay? This, this marital relationship she had before her brothers uh, sold her into this harem. And now her relationship with King Solomon, okay? And I want you to notice a few things as you read through the, um, the book. One is how often her relationship with her lover is talked about in terms of nature. And how often her relationship with the king is talked about in regard to indoors, a bed, a chamber, a table. And I know this seems a little weird, and maybe it's, you're thinking like, I think he's allegorizing right now. Um, I'm not. I think this is very intentional, and, and you can tell me whether you do too or not. I think one of the main messages from this passage, I mean from this, uh, this book, is that coercion type love is synthetic. It is man-made. And it belongs indoors in tamed circles. But the true love, the love that God has ordained for us, whether that's between a man and a woman in marriage or between friends, is natural. It's beautiful. It's so much better and bigger than anything that we could create with our own hands. And I think that is one of the most powerful themes throughout Song of Solomon. I just absolutely love it. Go back and read through chapter 1 and then 2 and then 3 and just notice how much she compares the king... And all that's going on with her relationship with the king to an indoor, tamed kind of thing. A forced. And how much her love it, uh, with her lover, her shepherd, whoever he is, is a much more natural thing. It's, it's about mutuality mutuality and love. About a freely giving her vineyard and him taking her vineyard. And rather than that being coerced from her. Uh, and she's going to talk about this throughout. Her vineyard, okay, to represent her sexuality. And now it's being taken by the king, and it's being freely given to the the shepherd. Okay. um, Oh, my goodness. So, you know, I could just as easily tell you that the scriptural testimony is uh, one of choosing to be um, uh, subjected to other people out of love for them, submitted to other people out of love. The same person who seems to think that women should be inferior to men is the one that's going to say in Ephesians 5.21, everybody submit themselves to each other out of reverence. Yeah, he goes on to talk about wives and husbands and seems to kind of go back to his old argument, but this is the same Paul that tells us to all submit to each other as Christ would. In Galatians 3.26-29, the same person who writes, there is no more male or female in Christ. Right? the same person who's going to talk about in his own ministry how much women play a major role in leading and teaching and all of these other factors, okay? It's the same guy. And this should apply to all of us. So it's complementary and compatible out of our love for each other. This is not sidekick type mentality. I don't believe that. I don't believe this is supposed to be women are a sidekick to men to kind of help them in their endeavors. I think the way God created this is supposed to be complementary and it's neutrality. It's about two people really loving each other and seeing each other as worth giving up their own preferences and their own desires and dreams for. Nor is it the feminist ideology of two individual people just trying to get what they want and demanding their equal rights and freedoms. Quit looking at me. You're messing me up, woman. (laughs) I don't think it's that I think that's what our society wants to sell that women you need to sp- put a foot down and you know your rights are your rights and men your rights are your rights and it's like democrats and republicans just trying to fight out some kind of compromise that is not what marriage is supposed to be about it's the opposite of that really it's about constantly being willing to submit myself to the other person that's what Jesus was doing read through Philippians 2 subjected himself to death why? Because he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. What does that even mean? He is equal to God. What, how do, what does that mean? How do we make sense of that passage? If not to say that Jesus himself in trying to inform us about this crazy three person relationship. It's all about submission. It's not about demanding my rights. It's not about saying I'm equal to you so I should get this. It's about ultimately submitting myself. And certainly women have been hearing this message for a long time. And men it's time for you to start listening up as well. But it's about submission. We do this in our friendships, guys. We do it in our marriage relationships. And when we talk about marriage later on, we'll talk about how marriage isn't this wonderful, beautiful thing that somehow is the closest thing that we can possibly get to God um, in terms of relationships. Some Christians make marriage out to be this just amazing and wonderful thing. Although I will say, I'm very pleasantly surprised how wonderful marriage is. Um, year and a half. Uh, I know I have a lot of experience now. Um, but if you have a good marriage but don't have a good friendship within your marriage, in my mind, it's not a really good marriage. And so I'm not just simply talking about the relationship between a woman and a man here. I'm talking about the relationships between men and women uh, who, again, the goal of friendship, submitting to each other and understanding who God is. So where does that leave us? All right, we've got to look to Jesus. I'm going to wrap up in one minute. Yay. I'm so sorry. I preached so long on this. I will not do this when it comes to attraction and beauty and uh, sexuality and power. I will do, I'll do a half a page of notes, okay? Uh, where does that leave us? Look to Jesus, who was gentle. But there is one thing that, G- that Jesus really um, showed in his ministry that was one of the things that I think was most striking. It was how gentle he was. And gentle doesn't mean soft. It means taking great power and putting it under control. Harnessing the power of a horse and letting that horse pretend like he's docile so you can pet him. Okay? That's what gentle is. Jesus was immensely gentle. Okay? And that runs against this manly masculine idea that we all ought to be like David fighting and warriors and yeah, ah, wild at heart, you know? Adventuresome in the woods, you know? Okay, I don't believe that. We look at Jesus and we see within Jesus a lot of qualities that a lot of our society would consider feminine. That's a real problem. When we've decided that the stuff that Jesus is doing is off limits for men, we're in trouble. Because now we're buying into our society's version of masculinity and not paying attention to the Lord that we serve. That's a real problem. It's compassionate. Pursued intimacy with people. wasn't aggressive was expressive was a servant was affectionate had a range of emotion I just picture him weeping over Israel before he's the one about to die saying what seems like a sissy line in any movie I can imagine the character of Braveheart who Christians love you know looking over the territory he's about to take and I wish I could just gather you like chicks like a hen does (laughs) can you imagine that movie you know like guys would be like what is this that's what he says I wish I was like him, I could just gather the chicks together. I mean, so soft, so gentle, weeping over this city that he loves so much. Knowing full well he's the one about to die. He's the one about to get killed. That's amazing to me. That's the God we serve. So uh, where does this leave us? I can't talk about this now because there's just no way. Um, maybe I, I can't because this is, I'm going to have to talk about this next time. Okay, whatever. We're just going to do it. Scales next time. Remember that. Um, There we go. Gender roles, I think, are often about power and coercion rather than humility and care. But our God is about the latter, I think. Um, Yeah, yeah. Just gender roles are often about power and coercion, forcing people to do stuff rather than giving them the choice to, rather than humility and care. I am not, guys, and hopefully you recognize this, trying to kind of do away with gender roles. I do believe guys and girls are different. Although, It's funny, if you type in gender, male and female differences in Google, you will literally get two articles on the top of your page, the Psychology Today article that reads 100 Differences Between Men and Women's Brains. And literally, the next article, of Science Mag, that says new study finds no difference between male and female brains. <laughs> Both of these have been written in the last one year. Okay, so there's the current state of scientific research on male and female differences. Yeah, there's differences. I could list lots and lots of them, from you know the way we do math differently to the way the hemispheres work together differently. Um, but the reality is, we still don't know where those came from whether you were birthed with them or whether society more or less embraced them. So this idea that women have a much wider vocabulary than men, yeah, they really do, and they keep that for their whole life. Well, is that because women come naturally like that or because guys don't talk to their boys? Or when a person sees a boy kid, they think, he probably doesn't know any words. <laughs> he probably do not want to talk, so all this talk to the girl. <laughs> Who knows? We don't know. But these gender roles are really pretty tricky for us. And we've got to be really careful. <clears throat> if you're going to believe in gender roles, that's great, and I think you should, but let's be uh, you know, uh, all in unity and in terms of why these exist. If they exist and God created them in really specific ways, it's for humility and care of each other so that we can have complementary relationships. Yeah. So that in our relationships with each other, we can have some sense about how our God works. Personality traits are the same way, I think. Personality traits, same way. You get to work with uh, different people Um, without, you know, putting them into these roles. Alright, you know what, I'm just going to say it. I'm sorry, I've already gone like an hour, so I'm just going to finish my sermon. I don't care what you think. Um, (laughs) We don't ever go too long in here, so whatever. So, uh, the most recent uh, research uh, seems to suggest, and this is really within the last 20 or 30 years, that rather seeing gender on a single scale, meaning that you're like, you know, male or female, that most likely what we should be doing is seeing gender on at least two different scales that you're a degree of male and you're a degree of female. Now, I know in the postmodern mindset that's like, okay, what? What am I, like 30% female and like 70% male? No, the whole idea actually is that we're not seeing male and female qualities as mutually exclusive. Okay, now that's what's really important from this most recent research, and I do believe it. And that means that because you have a what's considered a male quality, doesn't mean that you don't have that female quality that's like it's reverse. It means that you are very much free to have qualities that are considered feminine and still be considered a male. That's okay. Too often when we take really strict gender roles, we really confuse people. And we force them into calling themselves a different sex. Because we're so narrow in our... I mean, our different gender. So narrow in our definition of what that is. So if you're a guy that doesn't like welding and motorcycles, you might think, Oh man, I don't know. You know, maybe guessing now. That's not okay. We've got to be able to understand that there's a range of qualities and behavior and those qualities aren't gendered uh, qualities, okay? A lot of those behaviors are just simply behaviors and I think I've already talked about that. Um, Okay, Uh, so, yep, yep, right. So, we end with the Song of Solomon um, and uh, let's see, yeah, I think I've already talked about that. Okay, I'm sorry this was all over the place and I did this because, oh man, it's hard to mix in teaching with uh, preaching. So I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then uh, we'll have our uh, communion time. And if you don't know, uh, we do communion back in here or up here. We take a cracker and dip it into the juice. Lord God, thank you. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.